Hello, you're listening to Home Talk with Greg McKim on Tuesday, June 11th. What a beautiful day. Pretty hot out there. If you're listening on a different date, well, then this show is being rebroadcast or maybe was pre-recorded. I am your host, Greg McKim. On this show, we talk about just about anything I can think of that has to do with home ownership. That would be buying and selling homes, financing, remodeling, renting out homes, maintaining your home, reverse mortgages, you name it. So how do I have the experience or knowledge to talk about all those things? Well, I, I don't know everything, but I do have quite a background in this industry. I started swinging a hammer as a carpenter back in the 1970s. I've been a financial planner. In 91, I became a loan originator, and I'm currently a loan originator with Loanzilla Mortgage. My loan origination number I have to give you is 106202, and the Loanzilla license number is 67412. I'm also a licensed real estate broker. I don't have to give you that number, and I don't know it by heart. My primary goal for this show is to share with the listening audience information that will help them make good financial decisions about home ownership, and that's why I'm here. Since I don't know everything there is to know about homes, I frequently bring in guests. Today I don't have a guest. I'm going to talk about another topic. So before we get started, please note that you can call in during the show at 425-373-5527. Again, that's 425 373 5527 and we we air each Tuesday from 3 to 4 p.m. on 1150 KKNW that's what you're listening to right now or you can reach me off air on my cell at 206-250-6545 again 206-250-6545 or email me at gmckim that's g m c k i m at LoanZilla.com. Again, G-M-C-K-I-M at LoanZilla.com. You can also listen to this or prior shows by pod- podcast at 1150KKNW.com under audio archives. So two things I want to discuss today. Today I'd like to go over the loan underwriting process which I know if you have problems with insomnia, this will be a sure cure. Just turn this on tonight and get about five minutes into it, and you'll doze off right away. Also during the show today, I've been thinking a little bit about, since I started the show on January 1 of this year, I'd like to know more about what my listening audience thinks about the show, what they'd like me to talk about on the show, and give me some feedback. If you have any other thing, anything else to share with me or the listening audience, that'd be great. Any great experiences in real estate lending, any bad experiences, or just your overall opinion about the industry. Before we get started with all that, I'm just going to briefly talk about interest rates, which I usually do each, each uh, week. And today there's not much to report. They're barely, barely moved. You might have heard that the Federal Reserve is thinking about maybe lowering short-term rates if these trade wars escalate and slow the economy down, which actually cause interest rates to slightly bump up but uh, insignificant. And as far as the real estate market, pretty much in a holding pattern still. It's, in a, it's, it's spotty. Some places really, really uh, um, active. Other places a little bit slower. So today's show, the primary topic, again, is a real snooze. But I have had many, many people over the years ask me, what goes on behind the curtain? After I've applied for a loan, what the heck are you guys doing? Well, I'll give you a little bit of an overview of that. I'm not going to try and train you or give you all the details, but I will start and, and I'll hit the major bullet points, maybe about, about 15 or 20 of those. So underwriting a loan, lenders have two primary components they use to measure their risk. One is the property itself, which is called the collateral, and the other is the borrower, the person who's buying the money. They won't lend to God if they don't like the collateral. So they always start with the collateral and different lenders have different criteria for collateral, but that is number one. If, if they don't approve the collateral for any reason, whether they don't find that it's market worthy, whether they don't think it appraises at the value they want to, any reason that they don't like the property, they're not going to lend on it. The second thing is what we're going to talk about the most, which is you, the borrower. Now, it's a very complicated set of formulas to, dis- to determine what sort of risk a lender is willing to accept for a, for a borrower, your income your work history, 
your credit scores, your assets, how much money you're putting down, how much you have in reserves. These things all come into play. I'm not going to get into all those today. We're going to talk more about what happens during the loan application process, not how they underwrite you. We might touch on a few things. So let's start with the first step, which usually takes place. Somebody will typically pull your credit report and then either pre-qualify you or pre-approve you for a loan. And there is a distinction. So as a loan originator, if I pull your credit and I look at your pay stubs and W-2s and other, other documents to determine your credit worthiness, I could give you a pre-qualification letter. However, I am not an underwriter. I don't have any authority to issue you or, 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 or distribute a loan or approve you for a loan. In the past, pre-qualification letters were fairly common, but I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't even issue one these days. I don't know anybody who's doing it, but if there is somebody out there and somebody gives you a pre-qualification letter, insist instead they give you what's called a pre-approval letter. A pre-approval letter is a notch above a pre-qualification letter, but there are two forms of pre-approval letters as well. The first one is, as a loan originator, a loan originator or loan officer, let's say, I pull your credit and I, I either talk to you about your income and assets or preferably I actually have copies of the documents to support what you tell me. It depends on the client. I have many past clients. I have no reason not to believe what they're telling me is accurate. But it's always preferable for a loan originator to have your written documents, your actual pay stubs, your actual bank statements, and so forth, because then there's less likelihood of there being any sort of confusion about whether you're qualified. I take that information and I input it into a software program that's directly tied into either, well, a number of different underwriting engines. The, most, the two most common are the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac underwriting engines. There's also one for FHA, VA, and then there's some that are totally separate from those. But let's focus on the two that are used the most, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The process of underwriting is similar no matter how you go about it. So upload your loan and put in the data. I put in your income, put in your assets, where you work, how long you've worked there, your social security number, credit. And the underwriting engine comes back and says yes or no. Pretty simple. And the factors that go into that are complicated. But once I get that yes or no, then I can be reasonably assured that your loan is going to be get a final approval and you're going to actually get the money. However, that is an automated underwriting decision. It does not guarantee that you're going to get a loan. And here's, here's the challenge with the underwriter, uh, uh, automated underwriting engine. Sometimes the loan originator you're working with is, doesn't, isn't very good at what they do or they're not careful. And they input data that an underwriter, an actual human being at a later point down the road, is going to look at and disagree with. So let me back up a, a tad here. Once you've had the, under, the automated underwriting engine, the next step is to submit the documentation for a human being who's called an underwriter to review to see if they agree with the loan originator's input. And this is where it becomes a little bit squirrely, mainly with self-employed people, but sometimes with other types of employment, other types of income. A person who has W-2 income, a salary, base pay, pretty, pretty hard to mess that up. I take your base pay, I put it in the computer, that's what the underwriter is going to agree to as well. But sometimes I'll have somebody that gets maybe a quarter of their earnings from commission or gets all of their earnings from self-employment or gets a lot of overtime. And those can be interpreted different ways, and there's different guidelines that, that, that you have to follow. Those are guidelines of the rules lenders use to, to determine whether or not you qualify. So there are times when, and this doesn't happen very often to me because I've been doing it for so long, and whenever I think it's going to happen, I always, I always do some work up front. So, but there are times when the underwriter and I disagree on how your income should be interpreted. And when that happens, that can be a problem. Again, what, uh, an originator who's been a around a long time will see those things up front and try to either be super conservative with the way they approach the income or run it by a human being, an actual underwriter, before they give you that automated underwriting decision. So let's back up again. If I had just a pay stub from you and you're a salaried or hourly person, I plug it in, the odds are that the underwriter and I are going to agree 99.9% .9 of the time on what your income is. If I thought for some reason that an underwriter might not agree with me or I might even have a question about how they're going to interpret your income, I'm going to talk to them in advance about it, get their opinion about it. Now, most lenders this day and age will not look at your documentation they will not underwrite the actual loan until you are in contract to buy a home on a purchase. 
and you've and the underwriter has received all of the submitted documentation and there's some steps that we're going to go into what that what that entails same thing with a refinance so one other way to get a pre-approval and there are a few lenders out there that do it but not many is to have an actual human being underwrite your loan i'll give you an example one of the lenders loanzilla is approved with is called washington federal washington federal doesn't sell their loans to fannie mae and freddie mac they lend out of their own deposits they have their own underwriting uh, methods they have their own guidelines and they physically underwrite every loan even if it's a pre-approval on a a, a property yet to be determined they market that which is a real a reasonable way to market is that that's a stronger position for you to be in when you're making a purchase because you know for sure they're going to do the loan as certain as you can be i mean there's are times when things can go sideways on you but um the challenge with washington federal nothing against them is that they cost more because they don't do the volume they don't have the same risk pool that fannie mae and freddie mac lenders do and they cost more so the most competitive lenders sell their loans to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and the most competitive, the super most competitive ones don't underwrite loans and if on a purchase until you've submitted an application with a contract to buy. Why? Because one of the reasons they're competitive is because they don't spend their time and energy on loans that don't look like they're going to close. They try to be as efficient and, co- and, and, and as they possibly can. They try to keep their costs down by having as few people involved in the process as they can. So the three steps, again, pre-qualification letter, don't accept it. Always ask for either an automated underwriting approval and ask to see it to make sure it makes sense. I like to go through them with my clients and make sure everything makes sense to both of us. Or go one step further and find a lender that will have a human being actually underwrite the loan before, you have, before you're in contract in a property. Keep in mind, they might cost you more money. Okay. Um, one of the things that people ask me quite often is, what, who all is involved in this? And you, so you're talking with me. I'm a loan originator. And in, with some companies, the loan originator is the upfront person. They're considered really a salesperson in a lot of respects. And then after the process gets started, you get turned over to another person who's called a loan processor. And that person sometimes is a licensed originator, but typically not. They can't quote you rates and fees. They can't do some things that an originator is legally able to do. And they do a lot of the behind-the-scenes work. Some of the big organizations might have more than one person helping out. There's pros and cons of that. I prefer to do everything myself. Uh, there's one, one point of contact for my client. I'm in better control of everything. And it's, it's really not, unless you're doing a ton of volume and I do a medium amount, you don't need to have a processor. In the past, when I first started the business, it was so labor intensive. We would take a loan application, hand it to one person who would get everything prepared, who would hand it to a second person who would prepare it for another person who would underwrite it. It was unbelievably convoluted. And that was when the underwriters actually sat down in, and they had a books four inches thick and they made underwriting decisions manually. Now it goes, I plug it straight into an automated underwriting engine. I can circumvent all those, that's all those other pieces, all those other people that were involved in the process. We don't need them anymore. Just simply isn't, doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense unless you're doing a ton of volume to have another person helping you. So the loan originator slash processor is going to ask you send you a to-do list, and they're going to ask for things like pay stubs, W-2s, bank statements, tax returns, letters of explanation when things come up. There's all kinds of different things, uh, photo ID, and those things they will use to underwrite your loan. And then once you – now, there's there's a certain step where you, where you actually make application. An application requires six components – one is requires a property address. If there is no property address, there is no application. It requires that the loan originator have a credit report. It requires that they have income documentation, asset documentation. There's a couple other things that are required to make that list of six. Once those six pieces are in place and the loan originator or the lender has those in their possession, by law, that is what's called an application and certain triggers occur. There's a, now there's a three business day window 72 hours that they must disclose to you the terms of the loan that they are you're, that you're applying for and of course you'll discuss what those are going to be but those disclosures are necessary before you can start the actual underwriting process and this day and age most lenders are generating those electronically and allowing you to sign them electronically but not all but most of the most efficient lenders are doing that 
it's a lot of paperwork, and some of my borrowers get overwhelmed by it, and I just simple, I, I boil it down to, to basically one thing. The one document that you really want to look at in that pile of stuff is what's called the loan estimate, or sometimes the initials LE. That is the estimate of what your payment's going to be, the estimate of what your cash to close is going to be when you get to the closing table. It's a four-page document. The first three pages are the most important, and it, everything else is pretty ridiculous. There's things about Equal, um, equal Opportunity Act and um, Privacy Acts and all those things. They're important, but for you to go through them isn't going to make it or break your loan because everybody has to generate these disclosures that are designed to protect consumers in different ways. Well, let's take a break here. It's uh, 20 after. And again, if you're just tuning in today, you're listening to Home Talk with Greg McKim, the show where I try to cover everything that has to do with home ownership. Eric from Soup to Nuts. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I air on, um, it's like a full course dinner, if you will. That's exactly right. Um, today, I'm encouraging people to call in and share with me what they would like to hear on the show and a couple other things. In fact, here, let's just let's briefly go over that again. I'd like, if possible, to get five people to call in today. And anybody who calls in up to number five will get a $50 Amazon gift certificate if we can address these three topics, which are what would you like to hear about on my show? The top three things you're looking for in a real estate broker, top three things you're looking for in a lender. If you can't cover all of those, that's fine. That's fine, I'm trying to say. And again, the number to dial is 425-373-5527. We'll be right back after these messages. Hi, I'm Dr. Shelley Flace with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Parents make all kinds of choices about their child's health. One important way you can protect your child's health is with vaccines. Viruses and bacteria are unpredictable, and even healthy children can develop severe complications. I'm all done. By vaccinating, you can feel good that you're doing everything you can to protect your child from harmful diseases. If you have questions about your child's vaccines, talk with your pediatrician and visit HealthyChildren.org. It's hard to keep track of all the health information that comes your way, but you still want to make the right decisions. Here's an easy one. Get tested for hepatitis C. It's a leading cause of liver cancer and often has no symptoms. People born from 1945 to 1965 are five times more likely to have hepatitis C. The good news is that now it can be cured. Talk with your doctor about getting a blood test for hepatitis C. Know for sure. A message from the CDC. As humans, we ask ourselves all kinds of questions. But what if we were forced to ask ourselves a question every day that affected the outcome of the most basic things, the most important things in our lives? The question is, what is your sexual orientation or gender identity? And the answer is the difference between keeping your job or getting fired. The answer is the difference between staying in your home or getting evicted. The answer is the difference between receiving medical treatment or not. Because in 30 states, it's legal to discriminate against people based on their answer to this question. LGBT Americans have the right to say, I do, but they don't have the same basic rights as everyone else. Get the facts at beyondido.org. Brought to you by the Gill Foundation and the Ad Council. Wherever you go, Alternative Talk 1150 is here for you. Welcome back to Home Talk with Greg McKim, the show that covers homeownership from A to Z. I'm your host, Greg McKim. I hope if you're outside today, you're wearing a, 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 a SPF 50, but I also hope you're enjoying yourself. Maybe you got to figure out a way to get out of work. Maybe you, you called in sick. But probably a lot of people called in sick today, right, Eric? I would have if I could have, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I, I definitely wouldn't want to miss this uh, episode of home talk so, you know, I, <laughs> I had to be here but uh you know yeah it's i'm a little bit stuff. jealous of the people i saw out on the lake as i was driving across i-90 this morning oh that's funny oh man so today on the show i'm talking about the underwriting process when you apply for a loan what happens when you from point a to i guess point z and i'm also asking for listener feedback today if you've heard the show before if you're first time listener i started the show on January 1 of this year, 
The intent is to share information that I've gleaned over my 28 years in this industry that uh, I don't find shared much in the industry with other, but from other sources. There might be some, but I've not encountered that. And if you call in, uh, there are three topics I'd like to discuss, but if you can't cover them all, don't be f embarrassed or don't, don't hesitate. You can still come in. The three topics are the top three things you would like to hear discussed on my show, the top three things you look for in a real estate broker, and the top three things you look for in a lender. The rest of the show is about underwriting loans. I left off on the loan application and loan disclosures. If you haven't done a loan for a while, you might remember this thing called a good faith estimate. That has been replaced with the loan estimate. Although for second mortgages, they still do a good faith estimate and for some types of loans, but the primary primary first mortgages, are they use a loan estimate. Now the loan estimate, one of the things that the, it, was, it was designed by the Consumer Financial Protection Board, it was designed to try to make lenders have to be more precise and, and, and actually, um, what I'm looking for, uh, responsible, I guess would be the word. It was, there, was a, there was a challenge in the industry before the loan estimate where, where people would get a good at faith estimate, they would get to closing and the fees and everything would be way different. And there was, there was nothing to hold the lender to those. And the, the loan estimate, certain fees that the lender controls cannot change without a valid change of circumstance that is given to the buyer or borrower, I should say, buyer-borrower, in writing. Certain things cannot change. Certain things have a tolerance, and certain things can change. Let's go through those real quick. I've done it on other shows, but since I brought it up. The things that cannot change without a valid reason, which is called a change of circumstance, would be the fee that the lender charges or collects from you, which is called the loan origination fee. It can change for things like loan amount changes. You lock your rate and it wasn't locked before. You don't qualify for what you first applied for. Those are legitimate reasons, but it can't just change because the lender feels like making more money. Other things the lender controls is who they get the appraisal through, what their other fees are, say credit report fees and so forth. They can't change. And sometimes as a loan originator, when we, we don't estimate those right, that comes right out of our pocket, which is the way it should be. I've always felt that because why would we, why would we not know what those are? Well, sometimes we don't know. There are some quirky things, but when we don't know because we made a mistake, it shouldn't come out of your pocket. That's what I've always felt. The, the, area, the things that can change would be third-party services that you choose. For instance, if you choose a title and escrow company, then, then we don't have any control of those things. So those things can change, but there's a 10% tolerance for those. We're supposed to find out who they are after you've told us who they're going to. Let's say you say, we want to use First American Title. I'm responsible for finding out what their fees are. Now, I might not be 100% accurate on those, but I'm, I can only have a 10% tolerance on those. But since you chose them, I don't have to be 100% accurate. Then there's certain fees that there is no, there's, there's no they, they call it zero tolerance, which is kind of a strange way to put it, but it's okay for it to change in any amount. And those are fees like, say, government county recording fees and other things that, that I have no control over, or the lender has no control over whatsoever. We're usually pretty close on those anyway, and, and there's not a lot of dollars in those, but those are the three buckets. So that's... One of the really important things about the loan estimate versus the old good faith estimate is it holds the lender responsible and accountable. That's the word I was looking for, accountable for certain things they control, unless there's a change of circumstance. So now we're into the, let's say we've taken your loan application. We have all of your disclosures. We have your to-do list items, which would include pay stubs and so forth. And now we submit all those hard copy documents, which are uploaded online these days. Very few lenders take these things hard copy. A few still do but they're up, most of them are uploaded online. And then a human being goes through them. And they, just, they, they look at all that to see if the information that the originator, say me, input originally, if it, if, it, if, it, if it matches, if they agree with it, if the income that I put in, if they agree with it, if they look at anything that they find an issue with. And then they issue what's called a conditional approval. And a conditional approval is usually pretty basic. It'll say, this loan is, will, we will issue this money. We will fund this loan. That's what it's called. Funding the loan is when it closes. They, they, they give you the funds. We will fund this loan provided you meet these conditions, an appraisal, an acceptable title, an explanation as to why your income went up or down, little things that come up periodically, an insurance binder to prove that the property has insurance in advance. So those are the typical conditions that come up. Every once in a while, a sticky condition will come up that you have to do a little work to solve. But in most cases, a good originator 
circumvents that by by looking at the loan package in advance and knowing what issues might come up. But sometimes an underwriter will pull something out of their hat that you never thought of. The goal when I submit a loan is not have any conditions, but it's not that realistic because in most cases you still have an outstanding appraisal and an outstanding insurance binder. But that's the goal is to have nothing at all conditioned. So as you walk through the conditions, one of the most interesting things that's developed in the last couple of years is in regards to the appraisal. For many, many years, it was pretty much assumed when you got a home that you would have to get an appraisal. Then there was this period in the 2000s where they did this drive-by appraisal. And it was a reduced cost. It was more efficient. And there, there was kind of a wild west back in the 2000s. And you probably remember uh, that kind of ended up in the 2000s. There was, it caused some problems, the 2008 mortgage meltdown. There was, things were a little bit too loosey-goosey for a while, including the appraisal process. So regulators clamp down on how the appraisal process uh, um, takes place. In fact, one of the things that happened, I think it was about 2010, I don't remember exactly, um, it became um, the, the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, they don't allow the originator to communicate or choose appraisers anymore. Back when I got in the business in 91, I worked with a, f- a firm that I liked, and they did a good job, and they didn't do anything unethical, but I can no longer hire those people for Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA loans. Some lenders allow it, but most lenders don't. And the reason for that is to keep an arm's length between the originator who has a vested interest in the loan and the appraiser. And so there's a third-party company that came along called an appraisal management company. And that appraisal management company works with the bank. They work with different banks, and they have a pool of appraisers they pick randomly. And I I can't communicate. Nobody at the lender is allowed... Well, nobody involved in the origination process and nobody involved in dealing directly with the borrower, like the loan originator, the processor. They're not allowed to, to interact with the appraiser. They have to interact only through the AMC, the appraisal management company. Let's say there's something about the appraisal I have a question about. I have to direct that through the appraisal management company. So that's a long-winded little digression there. But what's, what's happened the last couple of years, we're starting to get what we call appraisal waivers. So a little bit back like the 2000s where we would have drive-bys, now Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac on certain loans are just saying, we don't, want, we don't need an appraisal at all. Just waive it. Now, there's pros and cons of that. The biggest advantage of it, of course, for a borrower is you save money. Appraisals now cost three to four times as much as they did back in 2000. Um, I used to do appraisals. I have appraisal come out and do an appraisal for 350 bucks. They're now anywhere from 600 to 1,000. And that's because the AMCs have added a layer of profit on top of it. The appraisers aren't getting all that money. And it's really silly because the appraisers, they have more data at their fingertips. They, don't, they now have, they can do everything digitally. They don't have to, they used to have to take, you know, three and a half inch uh, regular, what, what's it called, film? <laughs> what's it called, Eric? When you used to take a camera, you know, take a picture and develop it with negatives. And they would, they would paste it to the top of the appraisal, drive it to my office. Right. I mean, the, the time energy for an appraisal is, is cut by a third. Mm-hmm. The AMCs have jacked the prices up, make an extra profit. The appraiser's not getting that money, believe it or not. Okay, so another little tangent there. Sorry about that. But um, so the, the appraisal waivers, pros and cons. One, again, is it saves the consumer, potentially saves them money, saves them time so they can close faster on the, on the loan, which in some instances that's a good thing. Not always, but sometimes it's a good thing. And then last, if you're making an offer on a house and you're competing with other buyers and they're bidding the house price up, sometimes the appraisal might be an issue. And if the appraisal's waived, then you don't have to worry about it. Now, that's, that, there's a little caveat to that. The way you get an appraisal waiver is there's, there's multiple factors. That it, but part of it is there's an automated valuation model that says we think based on the data that's in our system from all the data points and all the different services we pull that this is reasonable this, for this property because this property's been appraised before, this property's a known entity. But if let's say a house is on the market for 800 and you got three you got 10, 10 offers, and one of them came at 900. The odds are very slim you're going to get an appraisal waiver because the automated value model, Eric, isn't going to see that property appraising for 900. So, but th- th- it could happen, but it's not likely. So the three advantages are reduced cost, speed, and potentially not having an issue with the appraisal not coming in at the property sa- sale price. Okay. So what are the disadvantages? Well, if I'm a buyer and I've, I'm buying a house and I want to... I, I went out and I made an offer. I'm buying a house for 600000 bucks. Sometimes it's kind of nice to know what a third-party disinterested person thinks. So an appraiser might have a different opinion about what that house is worth than you. 
Now, whether or not you want to have that opinion on it's totally up to you, but it's something worth considering because it's a big investment. Whether you want to spend six, eight hundred bucks, fine. Another reason is because if you if you have your contract written so that if the property appraises for less than the purchase price, you can renegotiate the price, that could be to your advantage. So if you're not in a competitive situation and you have that as part of your contract, that's an addendum. Sometimes those get waived in competitive situations because the seller won't accept an offer with an appraisal clause, an appraisal contingency. But if you have that as part of your contingency as a buyer, you have the potential. Probably not likely. Most of the time, an appraisal will come in at roughly the same, if not the exact same as the purchase price, but the potential exists. So those are the two reasons to get one. And let's, top, let's, just, let's just touch briefly on that topic. So people often have asked me over the years, um, well, what does an appraiser do? It seems like every time they do an appraisal, it's the same as the purchase price. Well, that's because that's their job. It's not their job to tell anybody what the house is worth. It's their job to tell the lender that it's worth what you're paying for. That's their job. Now, there are times when the appraiser will come in lower or higher than the purchase price. I've seen it come in lower or higher a handful of times in my life. I have a transaction where I was the originator and the real estate broker on for both for the buyer. I was both, and it did come in ten thousand dollars higher than our than our purchase price. Made the buyer feel really good. Now that doesn't mean that they automatically could go out and sell the house for ten thousand dollars more. It's just an appraiser's opinion, but it's kind of nice. So an appraiser's job though is not to, to to tell anybody what the house is worth. It's to tell the lender, hey, it's worth what they're buying it for. So there you go. Pros and cons of of having an appraisal waiver. Eric, did you have any questions about that? Did I go cover it okay? Yeah, I think you, you did a good job on that. Okay, yep, thank you. So we've, I talked briefly about the conditional approval. So part of the underwriting process, the responsibility of the originator, that's me, is to order third-party services. For instance, I need to get a title report ordered. I need to get wire instructions. I need to get escrow documents that I have to provide to the lender. So I'm in the background getting those things, and typically those will be conditions because I've already submitted the loan to be underwritten for income and assets and so forth, and, and I've, I'm waiting for those things to come from the, from the third parties. As a buyer and as a, a refinance borrower, when we open up an escrow, you will get a package of documents from that company as well as disclosures from the lender. And from, from the mortgage broker, if you have one like Loanzilla, we also give, we give you disclosures. And the lender, the, the, the escrow company will ask you certain questions. Um, what I typically do for my borrowers and buyers, I fill it all out for you and then just have you sign it. Because most of my buyers don't even know what the heck they're supposed to be asking or supposed to be answering. So as a convenience, I, I know exactly what to say. And I, I just say, send it to me. I'll fill it all out. Have you sign it. Send it in. And it's stuff like, who's your lender? Well, me. Who's your insurance company? I already, you already told me. Uh, who's the? Are you paying off a loan? Just little bits and pieces like that. And there's a few things to go through, like how do you want to vest your, t- in, uh, your, your name on title? Different things we talk about. But I usually take that upon myself to help my client with. It's, um, okay, so now you're, now you're ready to close. All your conditions have been submitted and approved. They, they're okay with the appraisal. They're okay with the title. They've got everything they need. They've signed off and everything. So we go into um, a period where you have to prepare the documents, those are the actual loan papers that you're going to sign at closing to take responsibility for this loan. But you cannot be issued, the documents cannot be issued until you have a three-day, three-business-day waiting period for what's called the closing disclosure. And that was implemented by the CFPB, which is the Consumer Finance Protection Board, as a way to protect borrowers, to give them a, a period to review everything before they go to closing. So three days before the documents are drawn up, you're usually electronically, you receive a document that's almost exactly the same as the loan estimate, and it'll, it'll be, do a comparison between what your loan estimate had on it and what you're actually paying. And that gives, you have to sign it, and that gives you the opportunity to say, hey, wait a second, how come things are different? They're very seldom different. <laughs> In fact, they, they're, if they are different, from lender standpoint, the, you had to have had a, a change of circumstance that, 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 that explained why, and if there's no change of circumstances acceptable, lender's going to have to eat it anyway. So they're very seldom are they separate, but different. But still, as a buyer you or borrower, you have the opportunity to review those things. Um, so then the next step is to draw up the actual loan documents. And it depends upon the lender how automated and how, 
how efficient that is. I have lenders where they literally let me do it. I can go in, click, 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 click. It's about a two-hour review and are done. Other lenders have other lenders that take days and you go back and forth and you just want to pull your hair out and scream. But it's just a, it depends upon the lender, how automated they are. And, of course, I prefer the former, the ones where I can actually go in and do everything and make it simple and quick. So once the documents are all ready to go, I generally make sure that you, the borrower, get a copy of the whole package before you go in and sign. Why? Because then when you have some time to review it, because you're going to be sitting there with a, with a person from the escrow company who's signing everything, and they're going fast. They're reviewing things with you, but they've got, you know, they got other clients coming down the door. It's nice for you to take some time to review everything, if you have any questions, to ask them when you get there, or you can always ask me in advance, but I prefer that you ask them because that's what they do for a living, but I'm available. And so now you've signed everything, and um, let's just say you sign on a Monday and your home's supposed to close on a Tuesday. Some lenders will allow you to sign and close actually on the exact same day. That's the day the loan is funded. I have lenders that will do that. Those are great lenders to work with. But most of them want a 24 to 48-hour review where after you've signed everything, the escrow company sends the paperwork you've signed back to the lender. The lender reviews it and says, oh, we're okay now, and they wire the money. So when you sign, that, that's also the point where you bring in your money. If you're buying a house, of course, there's a down payment plus other closing costs. Sometimes on a refinance, you don't bring any money in or you get money back. But in any case, if you're bringing money in, you bring in a cashier's check. You can wire the money, but most people these days advise against doing that because of the, the potential for fraud. So you go get a cashier's check. You got to go in to do a wire at the bank anyway. So what difference does it make? You can't do a wire over the phone. No bank's going to do a wire over the phone with you. They got to see you in person. So you go get the money. You take it in on Monday. You're supposed to close on a Wednesday. You sign everything on Monday. You bring the check in, and then you wait. Nothing to do until Wednesday. That's when the escrow and title companies get the money from the lender, disperse it to all the parties. They disperse it to the seller. They pay off the seller's loan. If you're refinancing, they pay off your current loan. They give the commission to all the real estate brokers. Everything's dispersed. At the end of the day, they send a courier down to the county courthouse, and they record the actual transfer of ownership from the seller, if it's, if it's a purchase, to the buyer. Or if there is no seller, then they, 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 tr they do the transfer of ownership of the lien. So the one lender is no longer on the lien, another lender's on the lien. It's recorded as who, whoever the lien holder is. And then if you buy a house, your real estate broker arranges for you to get keys. Now, in that process, there's typically I typically like to meet with my buyers, if, if it's a purchase, one last time at the house just to review it, make sure the house isn't a mess. I had a house once where I helped one of my friends buy it back in one of my first purchases back in 2010. And it took three hours and two or three truckloads to, to dump garbage. It was a mess. So that was, I was really upset about that. But uh, that doesn't happen very often. But your real estate broker should be available and willing to go look at the house. Now, most listing brokers, the person who represents the seller, won't let their seller get away with that because it looks bad. It makes the listing broker look like a dope, that they didn't take the time and energy to make sure that house was clean and every, all the garbage and refuse was removed, which is, by the way, part of the contract. So it needs to be done. So the biggest challenge with underwriting loans, and consumers complain about this on a routine basis, is that they keep asking me for things. And I will tell you that's because, that's because you have a loan originator that's not doing a good job, period. And what they've done is they've, they've, they haven't asked you, they haven't done a thorough job of asking you for the items up front that they need, they haven't done a good job reviewing the items that you gave them, the loan originator, to make sure there's no question marks that come up. There's all kinds of things that can come up. I'll give you a real great example. Let's say I get your bank statements. Lenders usually want two months bank statements. All right? So two months bank statements, and I see that you have your normal paycheck deposit in there every two weeks, whatever it is, but all of a sudden I see a $6,700 deposit. Lender's going to say, where'd that money come from? It's, they're always going to ask that. Why? They have to because of U.S. Patriot Act laws that have to do with um, tracking potential laundered money and some other types of laws that, for, 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 that have to do with what's called the suspicious activity report. Also, they got to make sure you're not borrowing money from some source. Maybe that money was borrowed in order for you to buy to, for the down payment. So there's little things that come up that can be addressed before your loan goes into underwriting. So ideally, and it doesn't always happen, but ideally, when I have a client, 
I don't ask them for a whole bunch of stuff, but it happens. So do we have a caller? And uh, who am I speaking with? We've got Alexi on the line calling from Seattle. Hey, Alexi. Um, I have a couple questions for first-time homeowners. Okay. I'd like to know the process and time frame for potential home loans. Okay. Um, can you be more specific when you say the timeline for a home loan? Like if you apply for a home loan, what is that process? How long does it take? Okay. Um, let's say that you apply for a home loan and you have actually don't you, you actually have a property in mind that you want to buy. You, you, right. You're in contract to buy it. Typically, I say you can get a loan closed from the time that you submit all the paperwork to the, to the, to the lender. You can get it done. I, I have lenders that can do it in 20 days. But I usually ask for 30 to 45 days because invariably things come up. For instance, you might be doing a home inspection, and that can slow the process down. You don't want to order the appraisal until after the inspection is done. So, and it somewhat depends upon how competitive you're, you, how much competition you have in bidding on the home. So, for instance, if you're not bidding against anybody, you want to ask for a little bit extra time because it gives you breathing room. Because there's lots of things to do when you move into a new house. You know, get your movers ready, all that stuff. But if you're competing, you might want to offer a, a 30 to a 25 or 30 day close because the seller's anxious to get get the home sold. But it's very realistic with certain lenders to close within 20 to 30 days. In the past, it was more like 30 to 60 days, but it, it can be done in 20 to 30. But I usually say I advise plan on uh, 30 to 45 days. Does that help? Okay. What if you're competing with a lot of other people? That's when it helps to be able to have a quick close, although that's not the only motivator. So if, you, if you're competing with a lot of people, your real estate broker should try to find out from the listing broker what's the big motivator for the seller. There are times when sellers don't want to close quick. Instead, what they want to do is they've got another house that they're not going to buy for three months because it's new construction, and they want to close either a ways out or they maybe want to close and then rent the house back from you. And just the quick close itself might not be a factor in the seller's decision-making process. So you find out what it is, and you always ask. You say, okay, what are, some, what are the hot buttons? Is it really important to close in 30 to 45 days? Would 45 days be acceptable? And then instructs your offer around what the listing broker tells you. But, yeah, if you can, be, if you can close quickly, and, and, and that's what the seller wants, that's, your, that's obviously to your advantage. Okay, I have a question for you, Greg. Mm-hmm. Can you personally compare mortgage lenders? How do you mean by personally compare them? Do you do that for? Do you do that? Is that your forte? Do you do that for a living? Well, I, I am a loan originator, and I work for a company called Loanzilla. We're approved with about twelve lenders, so on a routine basis, I am constantly shopping the lenders we deal with. I periodically have people contact me who are shopping other lenders other than me, and I routinely help them do that. They're, they're, I can't compete with everybody. I can't beat everybody. And I, I've, um, over the years, I've referred people to other sources when I think that they can do substantially better on their rates and fees because I think okay. that's good business. You know, if somebody, somebody comes to me and says, hey, I'm getting a quote from BECU and Bank of America, I say, tell you what, I'll compare them. And the reason I do it, Alexi, is because consumers don't know how to ask the right questions and they also don't know how to interpret the information they get back. And a lot of times they get lost. And I've found sometimes that people actually pick more expensive loan programs than least expensive just because they don't understand how to even read the estimates they get. And it's, it builds goodwill, and I think it's just the right thing to do. So the answer, the simple answer is yes, I do help people compare different lenders. That's amazing. Okay. Do you charge for those? No. What's your fee? I don't no. charge to do that. No. <laughs> no, I just hope to build Why goodwill. Not? Well, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. If I, if, I had a, if I had a business model to do that, which I've thought about doing, I could but I, I, it just doesn't make sense. Some of my best referral sources I've had in my 28 years of business have been people who I have referred to other sources where I knew that, I, that what they were looking for I didn't have access to, I knew who had it, and they thought that was wonderful, and they've come back to me and referred me their friends and other you know, uh, coworkers. And, I, yeah, I've gotten, sometimes I've gotten you know, five or six different referrals because of that. So what goes around comes around, they say. Okay, I have one last question. Um, right. If I were to buy a home and go to you, do you have a specific appraiser that you use? Well, if you're listening to the show earlier, if you're getting a loan through the standard sources, which would be Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, no, because the, the lenders won't allow that. They make us okay. use a third party called an, 
appraisal management company or an AMC who randomly picks the appraiser, and I can't have any communication with them. There are some lenders, again, Washington Federal will be one, that allow me to pick my own appraiser because they don't have those regulations. But that's a lender that I use infrequently. I like them a lot. They just, they, and they'll do things that Fannie and Freddie lenders won't, but they cost more. But they're more, oh. they're more, they're more flexible on their underwriting guidelines. They, they don't, they, they, they just, they just, they do things. The most, most loans go through the Fannie and Freddie Mac and then FHA. Fannie, Freddie, and FHA have very specific guidelines as to what loans they'll let a bank sell to them. Once you're outside those guidelines, then there's other lenders available that do almost anything. I mean, you'd be surprised. I've got lenders that you don't even have to have income, and they'll do it. You know, stated income, no income, um, asset-based loans only. There's all kinds of different programs out there, and they have different rules. Some of them will let me get my own appraiser. Some of them won't. Does that help? Okay. That makes sense? It, it does. And also in the future, I'd like to hear more questions about first-time homeowners. First-time homeowner <laughs> programs? Okay. Yes. I mean, the, just in the future on this program, if we, you wouldn't mind, you know, sharing a little more information for first-time buyers. That's a great that thing to bring up. Thank you. I remember, yeah. I, if, if, you, if you remember, I had I was asking for people to share what they would like me to talk about. I'm going to write that down because I got my little list here. I say first-time buyers. Okay. Right. That's great because there that are programs. Be there are programs helpful. for that. Okay. Anything else that you'd like to hear on the show? Um, I don't know. Like, what type of loan is best? For like the first time buyer and you know that kind of thing. I yeah. don't know. I don't know all the questions. That's why I'm coming to you. Okay, best type of loan. All right. Yeah. I you know I haven't really talked about loan types too much, have I, Eric? In the past, that's something I could add to the show. Absolutely. But people do ask that and get a little bit more mm -hmm. into what Fannie, Fre Freddie Mac, FHA, what that's all about. You know, why would you pick FHA versus sure. a, a Fannie Mae loan? What what are the advantages? Okay, I'll do that too. That, thank you, Alexi. I appreciate that. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank now you make sure you time. email me. Okay, thank you. All right, thank you. What's that email address? Yeah, gmckim at loanzilla.com, Alexi. Did you get that? All right. So we Terrific are, call, call yeah, from Alexi. I really, yeah, I really we appreciate, appreciate it. it. Yeah, I do. So um, let's see. I, I pretty much covered everything that has to do with the underwriting process. I'll, I will talk about the biggest curveballs that come at, at me in the, the loan bit. You know, when I get underwriting, we're not going to take another break. We don't need to. There's no requirement, right, Till the end. All right. Eric's shaking his head in case nobody heard him. So um, the one I mentioned just like a little bit ago before Lexi called in is when I see a deposit in your bank account for an amount that's above and beyond your normal income. Lenders are always going to ask where that came from. So, be, so again, the loan originator should review that and catch that in advance. Also on your credit report, they'll ask things, well, how come it looks like you've lived at this address or this address and that you still have a loan there? That sometimes happens. It's very weird, but a lender will have an address in the... In the uh, look, let me back up. The problem with credit reports is that most of the information there has been keyed in by a human being at some point. And so I would say that, eh, I don't know what amount, but I'd say 20% of the information I find on credit reports is slightly inaccurate. I, there's, I mean, I, I maybe even higher. There's lots of inaccuracies in credit reports. Some of it is material. Some of it really doesn't matter. A good real loan originator will go through your credit report and look for anything that doesn't make sense to them. In fact, we're required to do something that's called a red flag report, which is there anything on there that doesn't make sense? It's like, does the so are there are there multiple social security numbers? Um, are there addresses that don't fit with what like an address for some place the person doesn't that, that they that, that shows in the report that the person never claimed they lived in in the last two years because you're on the application you're supposed to put the last two years. Does it look like they have or own other properties that they didn't report or that they have? So these are things that can come up in the credit report. And again, an originator should go through that report. And I like to go through it with my buyers or my borrowers. I mix them up, but they're one and the same many times. And just make sure they understand how to read it. You know, what's, what is on here? What's going on with that credit report? Uh, so that, that comes up quite often. Um, let's see. Income. How income is calculated. That's a difficult one if you're self-employed an originator just has to know how to calculate it and if you own multiple properties the originator has to know how to calculate what's called net rent so let me give you an example what that means let's just say you own a rental property and your renters paying you two thousand a month and your and your your mortgage payments a thousand a month so you might think well gee I have a thousand dollars of income no lender doesn't look at it that way lender looks at it as either one of the two following ways they either take your rent of 2000 
and deduct 25% off of it because that's called what they call a vacancy factor because there's a potential for it to be vacant. There's potential for other expenses. So they say, okay, you're really getting 1500 So now you've got $500 a month rent. Or let's take a real more, more common thing where your payment's 2000 and your rent's 2000 They're going to say, it's not a break-even. That's a debt of 500 Why? Because they're going to calculate your rent at 1500 and your payment's 2000 So you have what's called a net rent loss. The other way to look at it is look at your actual tax returns to see how you reported your, your, your income and expenses on the rental properties. So a loan originator, when they, they understand how to do this, they can make or break a deal by understanding this and submitting the loan properly. If a loan originator doesn't understand how to read those things properly and thinks that your income is X when it's really Y, it gives you a pre-approval, three weeks later you go into underwriting, and you're not approved, and you're in contract on a house, that can be a bad thing. It's really important to make sure that the originator understands some of these things that can come up. So the top ones are deposits in your bank account, things that are on your credit report, if you have rental properties, and that's about it. Then there's always some curveball you never heard of in your life, just things that come up. It's just the nature of the business. It's one gigantic problem-solving challenge every time you, you do a loan. It's just the nature of it. Well, I got a, a neat little story, actually. So I, I'm in contract right now with one of my buyers to buy a house, did the inspection last week. And this is a shout-out to DR Horton, by the way. Whoever's listening who's a DR Horton employee, I want to say good job, you guys. So the house was a DR Horton home built in 16. My buyer, I was at the inspection last week. Inspector came through the house, said, this house is perfect. Then he went down the crawl space. He came up and said, they never insulated the, the, the crawl space. There's no insulation under the floor, no insulation on any of the pipes. Seller is being deployed. Him and the family is moving to a different part of the country. Just about had a heart attack. They called DR Horton. Last Friday, within f- four days, D.R. Horton had the insulator out there. Insulation's done. I went out and verified it today, had my inspector back out there. So I want to tell you, D.R. Horton, that was a fantastic job. Everybody's happy, and that's the way it should be. That house had to be insulated. Code requires it. I don't know how it go overlooked. I think we're about to wrap up, aren't we, Eric? Well, thank you very much for listening to Home Talk with your host, Greg McKim. I air each Tuesday from 3 to 4 here on 1150 KKNW. And if you'd like to listen to my show or other prior shows on podcast, you can find those at 1150kknw.com under audio archives. And you can reach me off air at 206-250-6545. Again, 206-250-6545. Or email me at gmckim at lonezilla.com or visit lonezilla.com. Thank you very, very much for listening. Enjoy this hot weather. Have a great day and see you next week.